Let's turn again in our Bibles, uh, this time to the gospel according to Mark, and Mark chapter 14, begin to read at verse 32, and if you're using a church Bible, you'll find the passage on page 1021. So, Mark chapter 14, beginning to read at uh, verse 32. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room, and Judas has left the room. Uh, They sing the customary psalms, presumably at the end of a Passover meal. We're told this in verse uh, 28, and then they go to the Mount of Olives. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Simon, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, this is the fourth and last message in a little series that we've been having in the month of August on significant scenes in the life of our Savior. And uh, we've said before that we're accustomed to celebrating certain moments in Jesus' life, Christmas and Easter, and perhaps also Ascension Day and the day of Pentecost. And these are big moments in his life. These are defining elements in his saving ministry. But they're not alone. And we've been visiting, as it were, this month, four scenes of tremendous significance in Jesus' life. Uh, The first of them, of course, at the River Jordan, where he was baptized. The second, in the wilderness, where he successfully resisted temptation and overcame the evil one. The third, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when something altogether mysterious happened to him, and his whole being seemed to come alive with glory. And you remember, as we saw last time in Luke's Gospel, that with Moses and Elijah, he discussed the exodus the way out, the saving act that he would accomplish when he got to Jerusalem. And now uh, we come from river and wilderness and mountain to garden. Mark doesn't tell us it was a garden, but John tells us in John 18 that he customarily visited this garden on the Mount of Olives. 
And clearly, uh, Judas knew somehow or another that's where he would be. He presumably had often gone there for solitary prayer, for contemplation of what was about to happen to him. And yet you sense, even when you read out a passage like this among Christian people, you sense there's something, there's a different atmosphere here. This passage has a, has a different impact on our emotions. There's something about this passage that makes us feel we're not sure just how near we should get to this to overhear what Jesus is saying. And the way Mark tells it, there's, there's a progressive sense of isolation. He's in the presumably candlelit room with the twelve, and, but by the time he leaves, there's only eleven. They make their way to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he stations eight of them at the borders of the garden. He takes three a little further, and then Mark tells us that he himself goes further on. And there's this, there's a sense of isolation. In the, in the wilderness temptation, there's a sense of his uniqueness. He's marching into the wilderness to face down the tempter. He's led there, driven there by the Holy Spirit. It's not that the devil is coming to him, as it were. It's that he is going to confront the devil. But there's, there's a sense of isolation here. And actually, it's, it's undergirded by the fact that in, in this particular scene, when Jesus is in prayer, there is no conversation. In, in, in the, the wilderness, there's a conversation with the evil one. At the River Jordan, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a voice from heaven that proclaims him to be the Son and the King and the Messiah. On the mountain, there's Elijah and Moses, and there's, there's the voice, and there's, I think, probably the symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence in the cloud that comes down. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's only Jesus that you hear. Um, there's no responding voice from the Father. There's no indication of what presumably was true, but may not have been felt by Jesus, that the, the Holy Spirit was sustaining him here in Mark's gospel so that we're on the verge of something, I think, very profound, unfathomable here. And one of the greatest books that's been written partly on Gethsemane uh, by, as it happens, the very first man to be licensed as a preacher of the gospel in the Free Church in 1843, a man called Hugh Martin. And he calls his book The Shadow of Calvary, and in the introduction, he tells us the reason he calls it the shadow of Calvary is because he felt he wasn't really able to see into the darkness. So when we come to a passage like this, we don't presume to have the final word in understanding what is going on here because what is going on here is something is taking place here within the Trinity. Uh, now, that was true of the baptism, the Son, the Spirit, the Father. It was also true in the wilderness. This was the Father's plan. This was the, the Spirit's operation. It was also obviously true in the mountain of transfiguration, the Spirit present in the glory cloud that comes and, and the voice of the Father. And here, uh, something within the very fellowship of the Trinity is taking place as the Son has become incarnate and wears our flesh. And he uses this deeply intimate language that, that you do not find among the saints of the Old Testament. And thus far, you don't find among any of the disciples that he, he 
calls him Abba, Father. And uh, you feel it's right to say we, we can see the shadow, but we can't penetrate the darkness. But what, what can we see if we see the shadow? Let me just bring out from this passage three of the, the fairly obvious elements that dominate what takes place in Gethsemane. The, the first is the cup. Now, Jesus says to his father, Father, let this cup pass from me. Take this cup away from me. In verse 36, remove this cup from me. And that's language that we still use, at least those of us who are older still use it. You know, this is the cup I've got to drink, and it comes straight out of biblical language. The most familiar illustration of it is, of course, in the 23rd Psalm. My cup runs over. But clearly, this cup is not running over in the same way, is it? If this cup that Jesus is to drink is running over, it's running over with something that seems to be the very reverse of what that cup in Psalm 23 is filled with. And Jesus had already referred to it. He would refer to it again. And I think there's very little doubt that this cup, this cup, let this cup pass from me is the cup that is filled, as the Old Testament prophets frequently described, the cup of the Lord. This is the cup of the Lord's judgment, the cup of the Lord's wrath. This is the cup of God's judgment on the nations. And there are various places in the Old Testament Scriptures where that cup is described and it's, it's actually described in terms that come almost literally true in Jesus' experience. You will drink and you will, be, you will be so deeply moved that you will find yourself in distress and distraction. Uh, this, is a, this is a cup that of drinking it, you will be exposed to nakedness, as Jesus probably was in his trial and crucifixion. And it's then when we see Jesus' words against the background of the Old Testament that we, we feel just how awesome a moment this is. And what makes it so profoundly awesome is that he senses that it's the Father who is giving him the cup to drink. The Father is saying, my son, take and drink. Just as Jesus had said to the apostles an hour or so ago about the, the cup of blessing in the Passover meal. This is the cup of blessing now. Take it and drink it, all of you. His heavenly Father is now saying to him, my son, this is the cup of cursing and judgment and my wrath. Take it and drink all of it. Remember that occasion in Genesis 22 when Abram is challenged to sacrifice Isaac, and he, as he's taking Isaac up the mountain, at Mount Moriah, uh, you remember how Isaac turns to him and says, Father, we have everything here for the sacrifice, the wood, the fire, but we don't have the lamb. And Abraham says in words that, in a sense, echo down through the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures, God Himself will provide the Lamb for the sacrifice. And it's this that makes a passage like Mark 14 and its parallels so, so deeply moving to us, because this is this is God Himself providing His Son as the Lamb for the sacrifice. Remember how Paul picks up the, the language of Genesis 22 when he says that, that our confidence is based on this, that the Heavenly Father did not spare His own Son, 
that gave him up for us all. So this is the cup that Jesus has to drink. Second, I think we should notice the emotions that Jesus expresses. I might have said the response that Jesus has, but I want us to focus on the emotions that Jesus expresses. We don't often think about Jesus' emotions. There are relatively few books that have been written actually on the emotional life of Jesus, but this is all emotion. Look at the language that's used. It's actually, it's difficult to take in. He says to Peter and James and John uh, that his soul is sorrowful even to death. His sorrow is overwhelming him, feels it's killing him. And then when he prays, you'll notice the experience of this prayer. And uh, we're told as he longs that the hour should pass from him, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Martin Luther said about this that no man has ever feared death like this man. Why should that be? Because no man has ever been faced with the death that this man was faced with. That's why we're told in verse 34 that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. You know, sometimes in your life uh, you have kind of unusual reading experiences. Uh, it, it, can, it can be related to just how you're feeling what's happening in your life, but you, you never forget them. Uh, one of the ones I had was actually, it was 50 years ago. Uh, I was, happened to be studying this passage uh, in my New Testament class at Theological College, and I noticed that the language that's used here in Mark is used later by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 26, about a man called Epaphroditus. He says, Epaphroditus is who was with him, but who belonged to the Philippians, really. Epaphroditus is distressed and distracted because he's worried about the fact that you're worried about the fact that he's sick. And that's the language that's used here. And so I discovered one of, the, one of the most sophisticated 19th century Anglican scholars, one of the great New Testament scholars, and an Englishman. In speaking about that, writes this, that this language describes the confused, restless, half-distracted state caused by physical confusion or mental distress. And I'm okay with that about Epaphroditus. And many of us know exactly what that is. Something so overwhelms you that you, you, your mind cannot settle, your body cannot settle. And you see, there seem to me to be indications that, that this is exactly what happens to Jesus in his humanity, this death that he is going to die, this cup of God's judgment that he is going to drink. It, it, it so affects his humanity that in a way he can hardly stay still. Um, look at what Mark says about him. Other gospel writers say he knelt down, but verse 35, going a little further, he fell on the ground. And then you notice that each time he has prayed this prayer, he, he gets up almost as though, he, almost as though he, he cannot sit still, cannot lie still, cannot kneel still, and he goes back to the disciples to see if they're praying for him, watching him. And he does it three times. And... and some of you, some of you have an experience like that, but not this experience. Because all of this is caused by, I think, the, the full awareness now of what will take place in the next 24 hours 
if he is going to fulfill God's purposes to be our Savior. And actually, in the history of the church, the church has found this shocking. It's actually found these words really difficult to hold on to uh, for, for a very simple reason, because can he have been this week? Doesn't such a response threaten his, even his sinlessness? There's nothing like this in the wilderness when he's facing down Satan. There was the explanation for this when actually it's, it's his father's face that he's looking into. And yet, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's just another evidence that, that the Gospels are really authentic, isn't it? If you wanted to say about somebody, this is the king, this is the divine savior, you wouldn't write this about him unless you knew it had actually happened to him. It was absolutely true. But let's think about this for a minute. Um, let, let's focus on, on these words. In verse 36, Jesus' prayer has three parts. Part one, he confesses God's omnipotence. Part two, he asks God to remove this cup. Part three, he says, your will, not mine, be done. And so I want us to, to turn thirdly to this prayer that Jesus makes. It's a confession of God's omnipotence. It's a petition to remove the cup. And it's a submission to the will of God. And my instinct is to get to that third petition as quickly as possible. And it's okay now. I don't have any problems now because Jesus has said, your will be done. But we shouldn't go there too quickly. I think we should highlight the fact that what Jesus is praying for to his heavenly Father who always hears him, he is praying that this cup will be removed. He's not pretending. He's asking. Father, he says, remove this cup from me. And yet I think it's important that we see that rather than threaten the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus and His obedience. This actually is an expression of His sinlessness. You ever thought about it that way? I think you'll see that if you understand why He didn't want it. Friends, He didn't want it because He couldn't want it. That's what this prayer expresses. I don't want it. Why does he not want it? Because he can't want it. He can't want to drink what this cup contains. He can't, as the, the sinless Son of God in our flesh who has lived in fellowship with his heavenly Father these 33 years, he cannot look into that cup with any sense of equanimity. Because this cup is that cry that will take place within the next 24 hours. My God, why am I forsaken? He, he doesn't want that. He couldn't want that. He can't be the holy Son of God in our flesh and ever want that. He must say. There would be something wrong with him if he didn't say, Father, remove this cup from me. Because everything that's in this cup would make him say no. I don't think we'll feel the the wonder of this scene, unless we grasp that, that he didn't want it, and the reason he didn't want it was because in our flesh he couldn't want to experience what he had never experienced before, that, 
that impenetrable darkness of sensing that he was forsaken on the cross. But it's not just that he didn't want it and couldn't want it. It was actually essential that he didn't want it. That kind of turns our thinking a bit in its head, doesn't it? We struggle with the fact that he didn't want it, and, and now we're saying it's essential that he, he did not want it because of what he's in this garden to do. I, I, I don't think we should make too much of this, but it's interesting that this, this whole narrative that we've been looking at began in the wilderness, as it were, the wilderness outside of the Garden of Eden, and that Jesus has come, as it were, to reverse what took place in the fall, and He's overcome the evil one to this point, and in a sense, He's now back in a garden. Now, what's He in the garden to do? Well, here's, here's the key. He's in the garden to reverse and undo what happened in the first garden. And if you think about the way in which Genesis 2 and 3 describes what happens in the first garden, there are some, some very interesting details in the story. Remember Eve, Adam, taken along to this tree. Now, I think we all have an inclination to think there must have been something so obviously bad about that tree that Adam and Eve should have said, no thanks. But Genesis 2 and 3 makes it really clear that there was actually nothing different about this tree from any of the other trees in the garden. Genesis 2 and 3 goes to the lens of describing that tree that they were not to eat the fruit from in identical terms to the description it uses of all other trees. So there was nothing about this tree that said, don't eat me. It was what God said about that tree. It was God's word. This tree looks beautiful, and so there is an aesthetic pleasure, and the fruit looks absolutely delicious. And so every natural instinct in Adam and Eve is to say, so let's eat. But God is saying to them, I want you to show that you trust me and you love me because of who I am. So even although there is no instinct in you to say, I'm not going to eat the fruit of that tree, I want you not to eat the fruit of that tree simply because I, your Father, have told you not to eat. And they ate. And you see how that's reversed in what takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is nothing in this cup that Jesus has an instinct to drink. But that's the point. He's reversing. He says it where he's going right down into the foundations of sin and the fall, right back, as it were, to the beginning. We saw earlier on in our series how there's the the shadow of the first Adam and the, and the last Adam, the first man and the second man, and that the Lord Jesus has come to, to deal with what the first man failed to do and the repercussions of that, the consequences of that. And now he's, as it were, he's, as it were, brought back now, actually ultimately to another tree, that's what he's looking at in this cup. It's that other tree. And his father is saying, I know there is absolutely nothing in you that wants to drink this cup. I know it distresses you. I know that your, your mind, as it were, seems to be on fire because of what I'm asking you to drink at this second tree. But you see, he's undoing, he's reversing what Adam and Eve did. And what's in the cup is the, the judgment consequence that has come from what Adam and Eve did and what we following them 
have shared in. And so the Father is pressing the cup into his hands, just as for Adam, everything everything about this tree said, eat me, but God said, don't eat it. So for Jesus, everything about this cup says, don't drink me. But his father is saying to him, my son, I want you to drink it. It says, you know, I think if I were making a movie of this and, and had some way of representing Jesus reaching up his hands to take this cup, I think just as he did that, I might do a little flashback to the upper room and to the, the cup of blessing that was still probably standing there on the table. That when he says to them, take this cup of blessing, drink from it, all of you. The only reason he can do that and it be real is because he's going out into the garden and he's going to drink the cup of divine cursing. Within the last couple of hours, Jesus had prayed, John 17 verse 24, Father, I will that those you have given me will be with me where I am to be able to see me in my glory, the glory that you gave to me before the creation of the world. How can he pray that for sinners? Uh, Because he's going to pray this other prayer. Father, remove this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Friends, he's going into territory, if I can put it this way, where the 23rd Psalm no longer works. He is going into the valley of the shadow of death, and he fears all evil. He apparently will not have a sense that you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. He's going into a He's going into an arena where the the great ironic benediction is not going to work. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up His countenance upon you, and give you peace. On the cross, darkness, sense of isolation, sense of forsakenness. And now He sees it even more clearly than He had ever, ever seen it. It's not in Mark's account of this, but there's a very interesting little moment in Luke's account where an angel comes to visit Jesus to strengthen him. Now, when an angel comes to visit you and strengthen you, everything's hunky-dory afterwards, but not in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's after the angel comes to visit him that he prays this prayer even more earnestly. I mean, I sometimes think that if the angels in heaven, if one of the angels apparently was able to overhear this, if the angels of heaven could hear the Son pray to the Father, Father, you're giving me this cup, take this cup away from me, and the Father is silent. Don't you think angels would have held their breath seeing that he was willing to be obedient to the death of the tree and drink the cup? Not surprising that our hymn writers have reflected on this in different ways. For children, there is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. Or there were 99, that comes from a different world, doesn't it? None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through till he found the sheep that were lost. Or maybe my own favorite 
from O sacred head sore wounded? What language shall I borrow to praise thee, heavenly friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Now, if you'll let me, I want to say four things, four sentences as we close today. First, never ever think that you can sink lower than Jesus sank, no matter how deeply you feel you are sinking. He will be underneath because he knows. Second, please never imagine that there is some other way you can be saved. How do I know that? I know there is no other way to be saved because God's own Son asked in the Garden of Gethsemane that there might be some other way. And if there was some other way, you can be sure the omnipotent God, God, all things are possible to you, that he would have found that way. Third, never minimize the greatness of your sin that cost your Savior so much. And fourth, never ever doubt, ever, that he loves you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that though he was rich, became poor for us, that we might be rich with the riches of his blessing. Oh, we pray, help us to trust him. Help us to trust him in the darkness as well as in the light. Help us to see the wonders of his grace. Help us to know that he has done everything that we will ever need to bring us to see his glory. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now we're going to sing uh, in closing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Alistair's uh, going to lead us as we sing that a cappella. When I survey the Oh,
a benediction comes from the book of Jude, verses uh, 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now, if you want to stay with us, you can do for coffee, uh, served on two positions at the back. If you're a visitor, then feel free to stay with us and join with us in that. Thanks very much.